remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, for those of you who have not yet met, my name is Josh, and I serve as the lead pastor here. Just like Steve said, I'd love to connect with you afterward. Uh, we'll have a number of people up here to pray, to answer any questions, and we'd love to get to know you. All right, so our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are little blue paperback ones in the pews. We'd love for you to have a text in your hand. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the, pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for another, another time to come together to sing to you, to declare your greatness together, to hear one another sing, to watch one another worship and be stirred up in our own affections at how great you really are. And now as we, as we turn to your word, I ask that you would give us a great sense of, of clarity in what can be a very confusing text, even maybe in some ways a very disturbing text. God, I ask that you would give us clarity. Lord, I, pr I pray that you would help us to simply see who Jesus is today, and then be able to see ourselves in response to that. I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us, would honestly lay our hearts bare in order to examine ourselves today, not in guilt, not in shame, but in submission. So would your spirit help us, would your Holy Spirit unite your power with my weak words and cause devotion and conviction and comfort in the gospel today. We trust you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, or maybe you haven't noticed, but there are a number of young engaged couples or newlywed couples in our congregation. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, if you're engaged, will you stand? I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple in here. Um, and it's a wonderful thing, I, I, I love it. That's, that's such a sign of health when young couples are embracing the gift of marriage and, and moving forward together. And, and as we've had this influx of newlyweds or engaged couples, uh, Icon has kind of behind the scenes been building a, a marriage ministry, which is exciting. If you're engaged or, or newly married or you just need help in your long marriage already, uh, we, we'd love to uh, encourage you. So I'd encourage you to reach out. And we're actually doing a series in the fall called Contested Marriage. Um, where we'll talk about the dynamics of the flesh and the spirit in marriage. It's going to be great. But all that to say, Courtney and I, my wife, have had the privilege lately of, of meeting with, with some of these couples. And this last weekend, we, we met with a, a newly married couple. And as we were closing out our time, the inevitable and critical question came up. What wisdom or advice do you have for the first year of marriage? Totally understandable. 
good question and a, and a question that for my wife and I brings up a, a lot of thoughts. Let me put it that way. The first two years of our marriage, and I've run this by here. I'm allowed to say this. Don't worry. The first two years of our marriage were horrific. <laughs> it was horrific. It, it was some of the hardest relational years of my life. And I mean, we, we knew that it would be hard. We did premarital counseling, you know, we, we went through all the things about like some consistent arguments that happened. And we knew that it was going to be hard for us specifically because in premarital, premarital counseling, we took a compatibility test and we scored out of 100, a whopping 17%, 17%. I'm pretty sure the only thing that filled out that 17% was the fact that we both loved Jesus and that we kind of loved each other. And so we knew that it was going to be hard, but compatibility issues and things like that can be worked through. Those things can be worked through, but what is more destructive or, or, or more painful is when our personal sins connect with our spouse's personal wounds, right? That's where, that's where things get really tough. And that, that was our story. I'll just, I'll just speak on my side, the, the, the sins, the thoughts, the addictions that I brought into marriage directly connected with and aggravated the personal wounds of my wife. And because of that, my ability to, to open up and her ability to open up was incredibly stunted. You see, I, I, I was the culprit. I, I was the culprit. I was the one who was always screwing things up in our, in our marriage. I, I was the problem in our marriage for those first two years. And because of that, I never, I, I never felt justified. I never felt safe or even able to express some of what was going on inside of me. I, I couldn't be vulnerable. I, I couldn't open myself up about maybe some of the wounds I had, maybe some of the needs that I felt because I was the problem in our marriage. I, I didn't share my emotions and I, I certainly didn't express any of my needs. Again, I was the culprit. I was the problem. So I felt like I needed to get better and be better before I could feel justified in bringing more than apologies to the table. I didn't think that I had the relational credibility necessary to bring my own problems or my own hurts to the table. Let me put it in one sentence. And this is what I told that couple. What I found to be true is that insecurity is the enemy of intimacy. I cannot open myself up to someone when I feel small, when, when, when I feel pathetic, when, when I feel like I'm the problem. Insecurity is the enemy of intimacy. I'm not going to feel safe to open up to be intimate with another person if I don't feel like I have any ground to stand on in the relationship. And that's true in, in every meaningful relationship we have, right? The insecurity breeds and pushes, it pushes away the possibility of intimacy. That's true of every relationship, not least of which our relationship with God, which I think is a, is a problem. If it's true that insecurity is the enemy of intimacy, and that's true in every relationship. Well, I think that's a problem because I don't know if there's any relationship we have that is more fraught with insecurity, <laughs> that is more shaky and intimidating, 
or, or, or more prone to us feeling puny. And I mean that in a bad way. I don't mean humility. I mean puny, small. We feel puny in our relationship with God, which means this. Because of this insecurity, because we feel so insecure before God, intimacy with him, deep relationship, warm relationship of love is not possible. It's not possible. We can't open ourselves up. There's no warmth. There's no zeal. There's no spiritual power or devotion. (laughs) Of course not. Of course those things don't exist. How could any of those things come to a heart that is fundamentally turned away from God out of insecurity because we feel afraid? Maybe the reason you struggle to bring your life with God into the center, out of the periphery and into the center is because already existing at that center is a deep, fundamental, seemingly immovable insecurity. Maybe that's why you don't approach him. Insecurity is the enemy of intimacy with God. How do we fix that? How do we address that insecurity? Well, in my, in my own experience and experience with, with other Christians, I think there's two main reasons for why we feel this insecurity before God. First, there's a fundamental heart resistance. We, we push against leaning our whole weight into the grace of God. Whether out of shame or unbelief or guilt or false stories and narratives that we tell about ourselves, We just resist at a heart level of throwing our entire selves on the grace of God because we don't think it's going to catch us. We don't think it's going to be there to catch us, which, of course, makes way for chronic insecurity. But the second reason, and the one that I, I don't think gets enough attention when we address some insecurity before God, is this. You know deep down that you have not given your entire, your entire heart to God. You've not given yourself to him. You, you feel insecure before him because you know that there are corners of your life that you still say, mine. And you also know God will not have that. You also know that God demands every bit of our heart. And so insecurity happens when you know that you're pushing God out of certain areas of your life. You don't don't feel safe to approach him, to relate to him, because you know there's some corner of your life that you're still trying to own for yourself, and you know God wants to come after that. So you feel insecure before him. Jesus is actually going to address both of these in this text. This text in, in Matthew 5 is, I think, one of, the, one of the more confusing ones that I think Christians bump into, but it basically has two movements, and this, this is what we're gonna walk through and explore. Jesus makes you look at him, and then makes you look at yourself in response to what you saw in him. And both of those, I think, are gonna answer some of that insecurity that we just talked about. So let's jump in, and let's see what Jesus wants us to see. Verse 17. If you look at it there in your text, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So, so Jesus starts off this section with a, a very clear and a very emphatic description of what he's come to do. And as you can see by the, the first few words there, Jesus provides this clarity because he wants to catch his listeners before they begin making some wrong assumptions about him. Do not think. He wants to stop them from thinking a certain thing, from making a certain assumption about him. And, and what is the assumption that Jesus wants to prevent? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. Jesus slows them down, says, listen, don't assume this about me. Don't think that I've come to abolish this. Now, why would Jesus feel the need to prevent that assumption? Why, why would he feel the need? Or a better question, what does he know about his soon-to-be ministry that might lend people to think that he's abolishing the law and the prophets? You see, these are not, these are not filler words for Jesus. Jesus isn't using this sentence in order to transition in his sermon. No, he's answering what, what he believes could be a pitfall of confusion for his listeners. And he wants to take that head on. So, so why would Jesus want to address this? Why would he want to catch them from making this wrong assumption about him? Well, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, actually seems to be upending everything that the first century Jew assumed would be true of the Messiah. If you go through the Gospels, Jesus seems to treat so many things lightly that all of the Pharisees and all the good Jews took really seriously, like the Sabbath, right? That's like a consistent storyline through the Gospels. It seems like Jesus treats the, the Sabbath really lightly in comparison with the Pharisees. And that's why the, the Pharisees hated him so much. He was disrupting their understanding of the Sabbath. Jesus knows that he's going to begin to do some things in his ministry, and he's going to teach some things that, if not understood rightly, people will think that he's come to do a new thing that's disconnected from how the Old Testament worked. He knows that there's going to be some confusion, and so Jesus is trying to, to catch them from making that wrong assumption, that somehow he's not connected to what God did in the Old Testament. And it's not just the Pharisees that that need clarity on Jesus's connection to the Old Testament. It can be argued that, that much of the New Testament is just people trying to sort out how Jesus in this new kingdom movement relates to the Old Testament. That's why Peter has got to work through some things with other people when he starts saying, hey, you're allowed to eat pork now. You can have bacon. And people are like, what? Or that's why Paul has to work through the, the, the reality or idea of circumcision and why that doesn't apply to Christians today. He's working through, people have to work through, how does Jesus connect with the Old Testament? And you know what's crazy? Is that the, this question of how Jesus connects with the Old Testament has risen through the ages all the way to 2022. There's still questions today about whether Jesus is fully connected to what everything the Old Testament said. Let, let me give you a very pointed example. One of the, I would say maybe the most, consistent pushback that Christians get on the reality and topic of sexuality is this. Well, don't you eat shellfish? You ever heard of that one? Talk back to me. Come on, people, let's go. Yeah. 
Don't you eat shellfish? Don't you, have, don't you have clothes that are sewn in two different garments? Well, the Old Testament says that you shouldn't do that, so surely you can't. If you don't obey that, then surely you can't obey this, what seems to be a, a command against homosexuality. People today, that's a different question, but it still has the foundation of how does Jesus and what he's done relate to anything in the Old Testament? How does he connect the Old Testament to what he's doing? And Jesus here provides his own answer. He makes sure that they don't have an assumption that he's just gonna abolish everything that God did in the Old Testament. He makes sure to get rid of that, and then he provides his own clarity. He says, hey, you can quote me on this. I have not come to disconnect myself from the Old Testament, but I have come to fulfill every last bit of it. Every last bit of it. He gets into iotas and, and dots. Jesus has come not to start something new, but rather to continue and to complete what God has been doing all along. You see, Jesus here sets himself up as the finish line of everything that God has said, everything God has done, and everything God has promised in the Old Testament. Jesus says, it's now gonna be complete. <laughs> Everything you read and everything, this is, this is why you, if you read on in the Gospels, you see that after Jesus' resurrection, he's, he's on the, what's called the road to Emmaus with a, with a couple disciples, and it says that he's unfolding the Old Testament to them, tracing from Moses through the prophets everything concerning himself. Jesus isn't a, a, a dam that stops up everything that God was doing previously in order to start something new on the other side. No, Jesus, Jesus is the ocean into which every stream, brook, and river of the Old Testament inevitably flows. He's not come to start something new, but has come to continue and complete everything the Old Testament has been saying and doing all along. To which we should, I think, understandably ask today, so what? <laughs> Why does this matter for us? Friend, it's incredibly good news for us that Jesus fulfills, continues, and completes everything God was doing in the Old Testament. Do you know your Old Testament? Do you know what God has been doing all along? If you do, you, you can know why this is such good news and why that reality of fulfillment should deal a decisive blow to that first reason of insecurity. Feeling like the grace of God has run out for you, feeling like you're gonna, you can't link back to the grace of God because it's not gonna ultimately catch you. If you understand this reality that Jesus is talking about, that insecurity can go away. It, it, it can begin to get pushed out. Jesus comes to complete it, complete the story of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it covers a story that spans thousands of years and has one main theme, that God is unrelenting and unceasing in his commitment to redeem human beings. Jesus has come to pick that up and to complete it. Everything, every bit of redemption, every bit of faithfulness in God that you see in the Old Testament, Jesus has come to fulfill. 
The Old Testament, which starts off with a high note, right? The, the, the eternal God out of abundance of his own joy and not a single need in himself creates the world out of nothing. A world of beauty and peace, of, of safety and satisfaction. But not long after that creation, as we know, his human image bearers screw it all up. Out of rebellion, we introduce sin into the world and all of creation plunges from the place of paradise. And yet God would not rest content with us condemning ourselves through sin or separating ourselves from him by rebellion. The Old Testament is about him taking on the task of redemption. This task of, of redemption is, is followed through the whole, the whole Old Testament. He, he chooses Abraham, who he will make into a people that numbers more than the stars of heavens. And then this people that, that comes from Abraham is eventually made slaves in Egypt. And God does everything necessary to free them from their oppressors and bring them into their own land. But despite this freedom, his people, the Israelites, continue on in their rebellious ways and break their covenant with God again and again and again. And yet, God still remains faithful through it all. That's the theme. That's the plot line of the Old Testament. That God is faithful. That he has promises that he will complete. He does not start over. He does not give up. But through the ebbs and flows of his own people's devotion and lack of devotion, he remains steadfastly committed to redeeming us and bringing us back to himself. And Jesus here says to you today that he is the fulfillment, the continuation, the completion of that same commitment. Jesus has come to bring into harmony every note of the Old Testament that's still at a tune. He's come to bring redemption to God's people that will be so complete and so full, so final, that, that even their own disobedience can't wiggle them out of that relationship. Do you, I mean, do you feel it, friend? Do you feel the, the consummation of it all? That Jesus finishes it all. He fulfills it all. He picks up the Old Testament and carries the story forward. That he's now the greater Adam who will bring about God's renewed paradise. He's the greater Noah who will lead people into the ark of grace out of the flood of God's wrath. He's the greater Abraham through whom God creates a, a new people. A greater Moses through whom God actually delivers not just from the tyranny of a nation but from sin and death itself. He's a greater Joshua who defeats the enemies of God in sin. He's a greater David, the righteous king of God's people. Jesus is the continuation and completion of God's purposes, plans, and promises all throughout the Old Testament. And this should tell us some things in regard to that insecurity that we have, friends. It should tell us that Jesus is enough and that God is faithful. If you struggle with the grace of God today, if you, if you feel insecure in your relationship with God because you're afraid to fully fall back into grace, we just hear these two things. Jesus actually is enough and God actually is faithful. Jesus is enough to give you confidence in grace. The Old Testament is filled 
with all kinds of problems and frustrations, sins and shortcomings. And yet God, in his wise plan, sets forth Jesus Christ at this time in history in order to resolve that. If, if Jesus can be the satisfying resolution of everything that happened in the Old Testament, surely he can be enough for you. Every problem, every sin in the Old Testament, if it can be dealt with in Jesus Christ, surely your little junior varsity sins can be dealt with. And second, God is, God is faithful. This is what we see in the, Jesus' is this fulfillment. God is faithful. God doesn't give up. God doesn't start over. I mean, again, throughout that thousand years of the Old Testament, God had every chance and every right to give up on his people, to let them devolve into form and to devolve into lives lived apart from him. But he doesn't give up. He moves forward the storyline of redemption with an unceasing commitment. If God can do that, if God moves the story of redemption forward in the face of every sin that happens in the Old Testament, surely he can move forward your own story in grace. If he can, if he can remain faithful in the face of Adam the coward, he can deal with your sins. If he can remain faithful in the face of Noah the drunkard, he can remain faithful to you in grace. If he can remain faithful in the face of Moses the rager or Abraham the liar, surely he can remain faithful to you in grace. Or in the face of David, the rapist and murderer, surely he can remain faithful to you in grace. What we see in the fulfillment of Jesus is a faithful God who carries forward and completes every promise, every plan, despite the, despite the sins of his people. That should give us some confidence and grace. Now, this is a, a, a massive announcement that Jesus has just made. It's a big deal, right? And with news as important as that, it, it seems as though we should be given a way to respond, and we do. This is, this is where Jesus takes these next few verses. Go ahead and look back in the text with me. Therefore, so in response to what he just said, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches, teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Slow down, he says. Is Jesus being legalistic here? talking about righteousness, talking about Pharisees, talking about the law. What in the world is Jesus talking about? What's going on here? <laughs> if we're honest, this, this is one of those passage that, passages that confuses us. We, we hear Jesus lay down the law and we immediately start picking up all kinds of interpretations in order to, <laughs> I think, resolve the sense of tension that we think this creates with the gospel. Is Jesus being legalistic here? Well, we gotta come up with an interpretation that still makes sense of that with what we know about the gospel. We start to panic. We start to try to resolve that tension. We think Jesus try, is trying to ratchet up the law in order for us to be guilty so that we'll seek a righteousness that comes from him, which is itself greater than the Pharisees. 
That's how so often this, this text is interpreted, that Jesus is, what he's doing is trying to get us to feel guilty, needy, so that we'll run to him. And that, that's a true statement. <laughs> we, we are guilty. We should sense our need for Jesus, and we should run to him for safety and for righteousness, and that God has given us this righteousness in Christ, which true, is indeed greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That is true and should be never let go of. But that's not what these verses are talking about. That, that interpretation is us introducing anxiety into the text and trying to resolve it by implanting something that is true into verses that are try, trying to communicate something else that is true. There are, friends, there are plenty of other verses that can give us the confidence of imputed righteousness. <laughs> we don't need this one for that. There's so many others. So, what are these verses actually talking about? What is, what is Jesus saying here? Is he being legalistic and expecting us to be perfect? That's it. That's a no. Let's think about these. Let's think about these sentences separately and, and maybe we can come to some clarity and we can apply how Jesus speaks about this kind of stuff all throughout the gospel. So first, the, the command to, to not relax the commandments of God. Okay. Well, one of the consistent rebukes that Jesus gets from the Pharisees is that he's relaxing the commandments, right? That's what, he, that's what they keep charging him with, rebuking him with, thinking that he's relaxing specifically the commandment around the Sabbath again. And when he's accused, when Jesus is accused of not taking God's commands seriously, how does he respond? He responds by showing that the Pharisees are actually missing the heart of the commandment. He, he, he brings the commandment back to the heart. So, so Jesus in his own practice of, of something like the Sabbath, is this, the, the way Jesus doesn't relax this commandment is by bringing it to the heart. Jesus takes the commandment and says, you gotta go deeper, which actually ratchets up the commandment. <laughs> That's why Jesus says, don't relax it. When you bring it to a heart level, it ratchets up that commandment to a much higher level. I mean, if you know the, the, the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, what follows right after this section? He starts to ratchet up some of the Old Testament commands around anger and lust and divorce and oaths. How does he ratchet it up? By saying it's not enough for you to just not kill someone. You must also not hate in your heart. He ratchets it up by saying it's not enough for you to not just to, to not cheat on your spouse. You must also, from your heart, not have lust. Jesus ratchets up the command by bringing it to a heart level. And for even the, the next sentence, Jesus gives a very specific comparison for righteousness, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now again, throughout the Gospels, how does Jesus talk about the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes? Dead men's tombs? <laughs> that they are outward only? All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is, ha is hammering them on their hypocrisy. That they do all of these things outwardly, but inwardly their heart is corrupt and bankrupt of any real devotion to God. 
So let's, let's bring that down and have some clarity. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here that to relax the commandments is to do what the Pharisees have actually done. Practice everything outwardly while your heart is far from God. That's a greater righteousness than the Pharisees is to have a heart that's devoted to following God. Not just doing all these things outwardly, not just practicing it, not just being a hypocrite, but actually letting the desires of God for your life come into your heart and affect it there. And this even connects with, again, with the Old Testament. I don't know if you know this, but the, the new covenant that God promises to his people. What's that new covenant all about? That God will forgive the sins of his people and he will give them a heart of flesh upon which he will write his commandments. It all connects together. What Jesus is trying to get people to see here is that there is a necessity of your heart. To have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees is Jesus saying, throw your entire heart and devotion toward God. He's saying that you cannot, and this is a lesson on you in the way that it needs to. He's saying you cannot be in his kingdom with paltry hypocrisy of outward actions totally divorced from the heart. Like I said in the beginning, Jesus makes you look at him and then he makes you look at yourself. In response to what you saw in him, he makes you look at yourself. His declaration of fulfillment is so great, it comes with demands. His declaration of being the fulfillment of everything God has done and promised comes with a demand to respond with your heart. Comes with a demand to give everything over with with such great news about Jesus, fulfilling, continuing, completing the plans and promises of God, with that, in response to that, Jesus will not entertain half-hearted responses that are in the end cold and indifferent, that on the outside maybe look great, but on the inside are far from God. And this is where I think God's word makes a demand on each one of us today. This is where his word should land on us this morning. Friend, when's the last time you examined your heart? When's the last time you really considered your devotion to God, where your devotion really lies? Whether you are half in, half out with God, When's the last time you considered your own devotion? Friend, God wants your heart. All of it. And he will not settle for anything less. God refuses to be your side piece. God wants all of you. God refuses to be just another option for you. He knowing his own worth and knowing that your heart flourishes most when he has it all, demands that you give it all to him. And again, much of our insecurity 
in the Christian life is due to our refusal to let God have all of us. We know there's things we're holding back. There's relationships we still want, even if they keep us from walking in holiness. There's schedules we still keep, even if they push relationship with God to the fringes. There's comforts we still cling to, even if those things deaden our heart to spiritual realities. There's a sense of control that we refuse to give over, even if it presses us into the ground with self-dependence and self-reliance. You can't approach God with a sense of confidence when you have this little thing right here that you think you're protecting from him. You'll always know it's there. You'll always know there's something you're holding back from God. And so it's not grace that's making you insecure or the lack of grace, it's your lack of submission that's making you insecure. And so you're holding this back. You think you're protecting it from, from God. But with a God whose grace and love demands that we give all to him in response, whose love is seeking to win over every piece of us, again, you can't have confidence when you're saying everything but this, God. Everything, you can have everything, but don't touch this. Don't come for this. Don't change my mind on this. Don't take this. Let let me make it really personal. So I've been pretty vulnerable with you guys in the past, right? I've shared realities of, of past suicidal tendencies. I've shared mental health problems. I've shared marriage problems this morning. Since I was 17, I have had a on and off again relationship with tobacco. And it has, listen, I don't, I don't think smoking is sinful. I, I don't think it's inherently sinful. But for me, it has been. <laughs> for me, it's been one of those things that, sure, you might not be able to point to maybe a specific verse and have a clear argument of why it's sin. But for me, what it's done, what it does, <laughs> is dead in my heart to God. And I, for the last... 14 years now, it's this cycle, this on and off again relationship with something I know God wants me to submit to him. And I'll tell you the truth. Yesterday, yesterday afternoon, I was under the the burden and weight of this text. And to think that there was still something that I just want to say, God, you can have everything but this. This little piece of comfort that for for some of you might feel really small, but for me is emotional. (laughs) I had to say, you can have it again. You can have it again, you you can have it again. And who knows when I'm gonna have to say that again, right? I had to give it over. There was still a piece of my heart that wanted to protect something from the all-consuming fire and pruning work of God who demands all. I had to turn it, I had to to turn it over. And you know, for for so long I was waiting for a good day to turn it over, you know? So we do, right? We wait for an easy day to repent. Friends, that's not coming. There's not an easy day to repent. There's not an easy day to give over your heart to God. It's going to require, it's going to be painful, but it will be worth it. What is it for you? Maybe you've got a, a secret addiction. Maybe, 
Maybe you've got a wound that has festered into bitterness and you've forgotten how to operate without resentment. Maybe you've got a relationship that you know needs to be mended. Maybe you've got a relationship that you know needs to be ended. (laughs) Maybe you place a guardrail around your possessions in order to protect what you have from the call to sacrifice. Or maybe you're playing that whole Christian in Seattle game where you emphasize your busyness in order to excuse your lack of relationship with God. Whatever it is, friend, today is the day. Today is the day to repent from that, to relent, to relent from hiding that piece of your heart from God. Today is the day. Again, there's not going to be an easy day. If you wait for an easy day, you will find it never comes. Today is the day to relent, to give over in fresh devotion, fresh submission to God, every bit of your heart, because he will have it. Here's what I know about God from my experience and from the Bible, is that either he will win or you will leave. He will have your heart. He will make his way into full devotion or somewhere down the road you're gonna punt on the whole thing. By delaying your repentance, by relenting of giving, by, by delaying your relenting of your whole heart to God, you set yourself up down a path that, that could end with you jumping ship. Submit to him, friend. Submit to him. You see, none of this is about you being perfect. That's not what any of this is talking about. I literally just, literally just shared with you where my own heart I have to give over. It's not about you giving over a perfect heart to God. It's about you giving your whole heart to God. Even if it's this gooey mess filled with wounds and years of sin, just give it over. He doesn't care what condition it is in. He just cares about the portions. Give it all. If it's all there, He is pleased. So friend, it's time to respond today. It's time to respond to Jesus's call to give your whole heart to him, to give over whatever this little thing is. I don't know what it is for you, but you do. Whatever this thing right here is, to let loose and say, Lord, you can have it. To respond to the faithfulness of our gracious God who has done everything necessary to give us confidence in his grace, to respond to that by giving full submission so that we can be confident before God because of the fullness of his grace and because we know our hearts are submitted. So we're gonna, we're gonna respond today, friend. And we're gonna do something a, a little bit different. We're gonna, I, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna go immediately into our time of silence. And after our time of silence, which we do every week, We're just gonna go straight into worship and song. And I just want you to have a time for you to deal with God, for you to deal with whatever it is that that you feel convicted to give over to him, to have an extended time to just sit or stand or kneel, whatever you need to do to deal with this great God. And then at the end, after after worship, we'll come up and have the relief of communion. But, But first, let's pray, let's be silent, 
then let's either sing or reflect and deal with our great God. Father, you are good to require everything. Who else would give it? Who else would be deserving of our entire heart? Who else could handle it? Nobody. You and you alone can carry the weight of our whole hearts. All of, all of its wounds, all of its desires, all of its feelings and emotions and wants and ambitions. God, you can handle it and you tell us because of your grace to give it all over. So I pray that, that, that right now as we enter into a, a prolonged time of response, would your Holy Spirit lay us bare before you? To overpower our stubbornness and our resistance and imperfectly, sure, but with our whole heart say, you can have it all. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ that permeates everything we do. Your demand of our hearts is, is not in a vacuum. It comes from a declaration of Jesus Christ died, raised, and now with open arms welcomes every sinner despite their condition. Thank you for that grace. Would that wonder and beauty move us to respond to you now? We trust you for it and ask that your Holy Spirit would come. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.